0: Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Hope and Patience. It's fantastic to have you here. For this episode, even though you can't see me, I have put my heels and glam kit on as our guest today just makes you want to dress up. We're going to discover from our guest, who is one of Britain's leading fashion designers and one of Walpole's brands for tomorrow, what it takes to create and run a highly sought after fashion label. Her distinct feminine designs, to quote the Times, slyly modest, slyly sexy, are known to attract the where did you get that from factor. Our guest trained under Karl Lagerfeld and went on to design for Max Mara, Valentino and Amanda Wakeley before setting up her own made-to-order and ready-to-wear fashion label. With rave reviews from the fashion press, she's been hailed as the best-kept secret in London by the vendeur and the quietly chic fashion label made for life by The Telegraph. Stockists include Net-A-Porter and the pre-order straight-from-the-runway US website Moda Operandi our guest is the fashion designer Anna Mason, founder of Anna Mason London. So hello and welcome to the show, Anna.
1: Hello, Amelia. That was quite an intro. Oh my goodness.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you thoroughly deserve it, Anna. I mean, I just get so lost in your Instagram images and I've fallen in love, as you know, with that incredible jacket. And then I fall in love with the rainbow tafta. And uh, anyway, enough. We're going to talk more about um, Anna's designs, but just everybody check out Anna's Instagram because they her clothes are just mind-blowing. They're, they're gorgeous. So, Anna, I'm going to start off with a quote, which actually is from you, and it intrigued me, and it's, a woman followed me all the way up the escalators at Selfridges to ask me about my blouse. Now, tell us more about how and why Anna Mason London came to fruition. You know, was it an instant thing? Um, did you have to did it take its time and navigation? But tell us more, Anna.
1: Right. Well, that particular incident was a very, very long time ago. Um, at the time, I hadn't even started my label, but I was wearing a blouse that I had made, and I was working as a personal stylist and shopper, and I was going to meet a client, and I quite often wore things that I'd made to meet clients because <clears throat> bit well sometimes they wanted to buy them and I'd make them for them and sometimes I just could not find things that I wanted and so I'd make them for myself and that particular incident was one of those where a woman stopped me and said oh my gosh your flowers I really want one of those so I went on to make her one which was great. Um, I had always really wanted to do my own label but I was really terrified and life was getting in the way of that particular Ambition as well, I think, um, and you know, I was kind of under the impression that you have to have loads of money, which is sort of true. You do, um, but uh, I didn't really have loads of money, so I, I hadn't taken the plunge to do it. But every time I couldn't find what I wanted, I would make something, and nearly every single time that I wore one of my things that I'd made. I would be stopped by somebody who said, oh, your dress, oh, your blouse. And a lot of them became early customers. And after a while, I just thought, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. So I put, I was working as a freelance designer as well at the same time. So I put aside some money and I got enough, scrabbled around enough to make one first collection.
0: And then from there, Anna, how did you grow the label?
1: So a
0: couple of years I was doing that and everything was
1: word of mouth and it was literally people having similar moments where they were wearing something and somebody would stop them and say where did you get that and they would then become a the customer uh, and it was very organic and it was obviously had to be like that because like I said earlier there's you know there was no real money I'd pretty much used up all my money just to make the first samples, and So it was all very, get the order, order the fabric, make the garment, which is a very old fashioned way to do something, but of course, it's actually very clean and tidy. There's no straggly ends of unpaid bills because you're paid up front. And that's how I did it. And it just was word of mouth, word of mouth, and it grew a bit and it grew a bit more. And then I I suppose what happened, I held more parties in people's houses, more customers said, oh, I'll do a party for you. Then it was spread a little bit across London and then, you know, somebody in um, Paris bought something and she then, her friend then wanted something. So it just was very, very step by step. And then in the meantime, I kind of, my ambition had kind of risen to the surface, if you know what I mean. And I thought, right, well, this is all very well, but I'm doing this from my kitchen and I've got the room that's meant to be my kids TV room is now full of seamstresses and how are we going to take it from here? And, and actually, this is really hard work. And if I'm going to do it, I want to make it bigger and better. So I was emailing Meta Porter and different shops and stuff like that, and nothing really was coming of it. And then, literally one day, as new um, moda operandi contacted us, me. And by then, I had an assistant because it was getting a bit out of control. And we sent her a load of pictures and so we sent these pictures to Modorock Brandeis and they said we love them and we're going to feature them. So we were featured on Modorock Brandeis and then literally just about the same time, Netta porter called as well. So we then had a meeting with them and they bought the collection, the f- which was actually the following season collection. And really those two events suddenly pushed us into a completely different sphere of having a small business. I mean suddenly we weren't doing made to order, suddenly I was doing, well I was doing made to order for Mojo or Brand, but I wasn't doing made to order for Les Portia, it was ready to wear. And so it was made. you know, we, we were a year in advance with each collection, but we were anyway, because um, having worked in fashion before I was already on that timeline. And we were producing and making things to be stopped on Letter and that really pushed me into a different viewpoint, you know.
0: There is a question, Anna, that I just have to ask you is what was it like training under the master, Carl Lagerfeld? I mean crikey. Just
1: Yeah. I, I know, I can't actually believe I did that. Now and I think what my life is like now. Um it was amazing. He was amazing to me and I was really lucky because what happened was he set a project when I was still at the Royal College doing my MA, and I—it was—he it, did this project for a few years, but I was the first recipient, um, sort of winner of his project. And the project really was a sort of scholarship, so he paid for my second year of my MA, and then I obviously worked for him. Um, and I—it—it it, was—it was, of course, like every fashion student's dream. It, you know, I was suddenly in Paris. I was living in an attic flat, that I could only stand up in, in one area, <laughs> but it was really amazing. And obviously I had to look awesome every single day. So I was pulling out charity clothes and t- turning up at the um, atelier. And Carl was just fabulous to me. I mean, he I had a funny sort of vintage men's velvet suit that I'd tailored to fit me a bit better. And he did a whole series of velvet suits based on my suit and I was that was funny and I had this funny little 1940s crepe blouse with a a jabbo down the front which is a ruffly sort of frill and he did a whole section of dresses and blouses based on that and the shoulder shape and I was I was for a little moment a kind of inspiration for him and um that was daunting and exciting and and strange I mean I was really young you know.
0: How (laughs) young were you Anna? I was
1: 24 which um, you know at 24 you don't think you're young actually but you (laughs) realise later on that you are. Uh, Yeah he he was very encouraging I mean his thing was and I know he said this a lot in lots of interviews that he did that he liked to harness the talent of youth and he liked the way that young people approached and saw things in a fresh, different way. They didn't have the same reference points when they saw something, that ability to see something in a very untainted way. And he liked to harness that in the people that worked with him.
0: How have you and the fashion industry been coping with COVID? Because, I mean, no Fashion Weeks to present your collections. How How's it been working?
1: We have been muddling along and um, we did, so just before COVID really sort of hit the UK, we had, we'd done a film instead of doing a London Fashion Week um, presentation for um, Autumn Winter 20. So we, we made this film in Scotland and it was really beautiful and it just seemed, it already felt like the right thing to do and not do a sort of fashion presentation. And we had done that and then COVID happened. And obviously we had this collateral that we could send out. So mm. that was very fortuitous um, for me, but personally and my brand. And very quickly, people like Netaporter and all of the stockists, they just switched straight to Zoom. And so everything we did was on Zoom which actually has been quite good uh, because we're not paying for hotels in Paris. We're not paying to do events and great big kind of um, showrooms that we have to book to see our, our buyers. We're doing it on Zoom, which of course costs us nothing. We just do it in our showroom. Uh, and I say that, but I now feel having done it for a whole year, we're really bored.
0: You know? <laughs> yeah, you're looking it's forward to
1: going. to get back to yeah. doing all these things, you know. Um, but it didn't hinder the buying process which was so uh, a lot's being said about how covid has forced a lot of things that were coming anyway and that certainly is one so meeting buyers which the whole the whole, the whole thing about the fashion buying calendar is is it's, it's very it's a very intense period and actually all the buyers are exhausted and they schlep around from showroom to showroom seeing brand to brand and I think it's exhausting for everybody. And so doing it on Zoom cuts that out. So actually, let's keep the good bits of what make fashion, working fashion fun, the events.
0: So, Anna, you are a working mum. How do you juggle it and how did you juggle it in the early days?
1: Yeah, I am a working mum. My children are 17 and 13.
0: Oh, they're old. 13.
1: Yeah, in the early days, it was extremely challenging. You know, my day, I would cram as much in and then go and collect my daughter from school and then be a mum and try and you know fiddle around working in the margins and which was why it was quite good in the early days that I had all my working in my house and of course, actually it also meant that I, I never really had any time off. <laughs> um, I was always kind of double t- multitasking I think like any working mum it's always multitasking really um, and you know, trying to be a good mum. And I think that's the other thing. You end up feeling guilty about everything. You feel guilty that you're not working hard enough and then you feel guilty that you're not a good enough mum and you're not doing enough mum stuff. So, yeah, I think,
0: you know, you sort of weigh
1: yourself out, really. So now that they're a bit older, it's a bit easier.
0: Yeah, I would have thought much easier. Have you ever felt intimidated by other designers and their collections? Of course. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Yeah
1: massively I don't think I I think what I do is really simple and sometimes very obvious when I and when I look at other designers I think oh my gosh that's amazing how how they came up with that that's that's really incredible what I do is just simple you know so yes I am quite often intimidated.
0: Have you ever had any problems with protecting your designs from plagiarism from the bigger sort of stores who seem to Adapt their designs to the sort of catwalk designs. Yes,
1: I think. Well, I certainly have noticed things that I know I've done before somebody, and suddenly they're doing them. And we, it's it's very it's quite tricky in fashion, though. You have to be quite sure. Um, There have been moments where we've had to send a little note to somebody and say, this looks very much like what we're doing, Why, You know, you need to stop. And we've had a couple of those. So, and I had a, it was very interesting, actually. I was really lucky last, in the year 2019, I was the Walpole brand of tomorrow.
0: I know, that's Amazing. Yeah, it
1: was it was amazing. Um, It was such a brilliant year. Actually, we had so many great seminars that we went to, but one of them was IP and protecting IP. And, you know, there's a lot of myth kind of bandied around that you have, if you change five things, it doesn't, it's not copied in fashion design. But in actual fact, when it comes to IP, if it looks like a copy, it probably is a copy. (laughs) So if it looks like your design, it probably is, has copied, they have copied your design. So that was quite heartening.
0: <laughs> at least you are the leader, though. You are the originator.
1: Yeah, I I personally am pretty sure that most designers work in some kind of zeitgeist and will come up with similar things at the same time.
0: Have you had any um, missed opportunities, do you think, while you've been um, creating your label? Sometimes when you look back, you can just think, oh, I wish I'd taken that route or
1: not since starting my label I don't feel that at all um when I was actually younger yes I because I worked for Carl and then I went to Wattemar and stuff and then I I met my husband and I came back to to London and I started working for Amanda Wakeley and then when I had my son um, I sort of stopped working for a bit and I lost my way for a good few years professionally I I kind of maybe fell a little bit out of love with the idea of being fashion designer for a bit. But I felt quite at sea at the same time. I knew, and and then I wondered, and I did really, really one day wake up thinking, my God, if I don't do what I set out to do, I will never do it. There was a real moment for me where I thought, I haven't done my ambition at all, you know, I'm now And mum, and I'm working as a personal stylist and shopper. And I'm, I was, I was a fashion designer. I had big dreams and big ideas and huge ambition. And I haven't done it. What am I doing? I need to do it. I don't care how hard it is. I need to do it. There was a real pinprick moment for me.
0: I love that pinprick. I mean, that's amazing, (laughs) Anna. It's amazing that you know, you, you, you got sort of triggered. You suddenly thought, right, I've got to do it. I can't live with this feeling of of not doing what you really want to be doing. I,
1: I definitely had that. I definitely had a sense of inadequacy about myself, if you know what I mean. I felt like I have failed myself. It's funny, you know, you talked about, you, you said at the beginning that you're going to talk about some success and failures. When I was a little girl, I used to, when, when I had to blow out the candles on a birthday cake, I always used to wish for success. That was my wish. Oh, really? so saying, yeah.
0: How did yeah. you see success at that age? We're going to talk about how you see it now later on. But how did you see success when you were that little girl blowing out the birthday candles? I was going to be a fashion designer. Wow. I I
1: mean, I I decided I was going to be a fashion designer when I was six, um, about six, because I really, really loved drawing and I was quite good at it. And I said, well, my dad says, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, either an artist. He said, well, you're already an artist. And I said, well, then, a fashion designer. <laughs> um, That's you know, incredible. I just loved fashion and clothes. Now, I so said I was really driven. But, you know, it made, I mentioned, meant that I was absolutely rubbish at school. I really was a daydreamer. I didn't really focus on school at all. I did quite badly at school. I was always in the art room. I kind of, that was it. I just... Just, I was sort of like one trap minded, really.
0: Was your mother into fashion? I mean, where d- does it come through your sort of DNA as such? I think a bit. So my mum was really stylish. Um, she's
1: Swedish, and she sort of wore clogs and velvet thread suits in seventies, oh, wow. and jump jumpsuits, and she just seemed. Incredible. I just remember the power, the transforming power of clothes as well. So she'd be my mum in the day and she'd be wearing uh, kind of actually like a boiler suit with clogs and driving around in her Citroen and <laughs> with ABBA blaring really, really nice. Oh, fantastic. Me and my Amazing. sisters would sit, yeah. <laughs> and, then it, and then they'd be going out for dinner and suddenly she'd be wearing a long gown in pleated cream that looked like a butterfly. And I'd be like... Oh, Oh, you look like a princess you know oh. I just I, I really romanticized the, the idea of clothes definitely just because the 70s you really dressed up if you went out for dinner you wore long dresses you know and she was she she was very very pretty I and mean, she still is but she was very very pretty when she was young and I just thought she was knockout you know so I kind of that definitely watching her seeing her and how she got dressed up and uh, with clothes was one thing. But then also my grandmother on my father's side was um, a seamstress and she was always making things. And she kind of taught me how to sew. And I always, when I went to see her, I'd be like, can we do some sewing? And she'd say, oh, yes, okay. And we made dresses for my Cindy's and she then made a whole wardrobe for my Cindy's. So I, you know, I was really, I was just driven by clothes and art and drawing and painting and painting making things that was what i was about
0: do you have um anyone who was your greatest influence at all oh my goodness i design what so my greatest
1: influence in fashion people who i sort of obsessed about most when i started being a fashion student was coco chanel Mm -hmm. um and i i just loved what she was doing, her idea of taking kind of um, typical fabrics used in underwear and making them into beautiful suits um, and how she progressed that all the way through and also her irreverence and her amazing ability to be able to say excellent quotes about what she was doing as well, Um, none of which I can now bring to mind at all. I loved the 30s and the 40s as 1930s and 1940s is my sort of era the most aside from Chanel if you know what I mean. So her ethos is what inspired me. Um, But actually, the clothes of the 30s and 40s are something that's more inherent in my soul in terms of what I like to look at. Um, What else? I like the sort of the, the most beautiful stars of the 60s and 70s, particularly the French, like Catherine Deneuve and Mm -hmm. um, Brigitte Bardot. I just, I love that sort of classic look that they have.
0: So, Anna, in the olden, I say the olden days, but the 30s and 40s, there was far less waste than I think that happens now. I'm imagining there was far less waste. I read on one of your posts um, on Instagram that 40% of purchases end up in landfill which is truly shocking. Yeah. Where do you stand on fashion and sustainability?
1: It's very difficult to be ultimately sustainable in fashion, but mm-hmm. our, my brand values on this is that, first of all, most of what we do is make-to-order. So we order only the amount of fabric that we want, but I'll talk about that as well. And what I make is... Built to last, as it were. So it's it's not a throwaway thing, you know. And I want people to make a considered opinion and then sort of you know assess whether they really want to buy this thing based on the fact that they're going to wear it for a while, rather than I'm gonna buy it and throw it away or you know get rid of it. Um it sounds a bit flaky, and then the other, other thing that we do and they are increasingly doing is finding fabrics that are either recycled so we've made things out of recycled polyester which sounds strange but actually polyester these days is quite an incredible fabric Um, and recycled polyester is quite awesome i also research as much as i can fabrics that are more eco-friendly and in fact we've got a series of items coming up in summer that are made from an eco-friendly terry toweling which i'm really excited about oh wow! yeah no, i'm really excited about my terry toweling it's all about comfort
0: <laughs> <laughs> um right in my childhood yeah no
1: again we're back to the 70s you see that was also a major influence a lot of 70s stuff and the, um and we're going more and more in the direction of seeking out ecological fabrics and fabrics that have less detriment to the environment when they're made I mean you know the dyeing process is really really bad for the environment and I went to a seminar which was incredibly interesting by this company called Colorific who have managed to capture the how you and I'm not a scientist so I can't say this in the most scientific way but they've managed to work out how they how they can find the DNA formula that makes the color. So how he described it was the color of one of the peacock feathers, we can copy that because we can get the formula from DNA and that creates the color rather than us dyeing it. I mean, how is extraordinary, but it stops this process of liters and liters of water to dye a bit of fabric. So, you know, there are people doing amazing things and hopefully these things will become more readily available to everyone because that is the main problem with being a designer it's a, and trying to have an ecological viewpoint. It's really, really hard. It's really expensive. It's really difficult to get your hands on these amazing things. You, you know, you spend a long time having to research it and then you're not going to be in time for the collection that you've got to produce. It, you know, and I'm just, it's just me and a couple of people So my brand. We're not a big massive brand, so we haven't got the resources, people or money, dare I say it, to keep researching as much as we would like to.
0: Yeah, you almost need the bigger people to do it and then you can get in the slipstream. But I think totally. the other thing is less is less is more. Do we need loads of stuff in our cupboards? No. So Anna, a bit about you. Do you have that sort of inner critic at all? Do you have that negative sort of voice saying you should be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that? Or Do you ever have that? Definitely. It's a voice you have to quash.
1: No, <laughs> because it... If you listen to it, you won't do anything. Um, you know, you'll never take the leap and try and do anything. So I, you have to... How do you try and keep it in check? I try not to listen to it. So mm-hmm. my thing about it is sometimes I think, why why am I getting that voice? I'm, if I'm getting that voice, that means I must actually get, a, get, a, get on and do this thing, at least explore it to the point where... I know it's not the right thing to do anymore. Rather than just listening to that, you know, just because that voice is telling you that you're wrong, it doesn't mean you are. If you know what I mean? I don't know. I, I just know that every time you listen to that, you're you get stopped in the tracks, or I do anyway. So you have to battle on.
0: It is. Some, some of the guests um, have told me that they name their inner critic. They name it, they give it a name. And, uh, and I think it was Pip from Pip and Nuts said she calls it Rachel or Rebecca or something like that. And so when it starts talking to her, she talks back at it. Um, I think I might try that. I might try that. <laughs> it's very clever, very clever. Very <laughs> clever. What, Anna, what have you learned about yourself from having your own business? I think you, know, you can learn some horrible things
1: about yourself when you have your own business. You can learn how impatient you are. You can learn, mm-hmm. you can learn how, which I've certainly had moments of that. You can learn how angry you can get when things go wrong. Um, and then you sometimes have a, a moment where you think I actually handled that quite well. You learn that you have depths of paranoia about things that you really should not have paranoia about. I think having your own business is so all encompassing in so many ways particularly when you're doing something creative because of course the thing I want to do is do the creative thing and all the nitty gritty bits of businessy stuff, I really, I really don't like those bits so much. But I've also learned that there are elements of kind of strategic thinking and owning a business that are, re- are deeply rewarding and are actually very, very creative, yet I never thought they were when I first started. So I think you just have to keep reinventing yourself when you have your own business as well, I think. You have to keep trying to find ways to do it better than you did it last time.
0: How do you cope out of your comfort zone with things like uncertainty? I veer between being despairing
1: and and being almost catatonic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, you know one day I feel quite hyperactive about it and then the next day or even the next hour I feel sort of very flat I think if you're sort of directly referring to Covid it's it has been one hell of a road coaster this this period having a business during this time a young fledgling business too I'd say you know that's run very much with you know, a few people has meant we've had to be really very flexible about how we do things. And nimble. Yeah, flexible, nimble. Yeah, exactly.
0: So we're going to go into our quick fire round. Anna, optimist or pessimist? Pessimist. (laughs) Introvert, extrovert, ambivert, which is a mix. I'm an ambivert. Perfectionist or non-perfectionist? Can
1: I not be something in the middle, which means yes. sometimes I'm one, and sometimes
0: I'm the other. <laughs> I don't know what they'd call that, probably an ambi-perfectionist or something. Are, yeah. you an, a, are you an early bird or night owl? A night owl. On the pessimistic side, I, I'm with you on that. I'm trying to force myself into being more of an optimist. How do you push yourself forward being a pessimist?
1: Um, I think that the inner voice says, you've got to make this better, so keep going. That's my thing.
0: We are now heading into some a break that I've been really looking forward to, which is the chocolate break, because Anna has picked a bar that I have never tried before. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we've had, we've had the brand, Perry, um, on an earlier episode, picked Ritter Sport, and he went for Dark Hazelnut, I think it was. Now, Anna has picked Marzipan, which is covered in chocolate. I think it's a dark chocolate. Now, Anna, why... White dark chocolate with marzipan. I just love the gritty texture of the marzipan
1: in this. Um, I used to hate marzipan when I was a child, and then I, when I discovered it, or grew to like it as an adult, I just love this stuff. I could eat this whole bar right now.
0: This is um, really fascinating. It's, I mean, it's that it's the whole sort of almondy hit, and as you say, that sort of gritty texture. Yeah. That, you've got, that you've got this sort of really hard bite into it. I love
1: the biting into it
0: bit. I've just dropped my bar. Them. Sorry, listeners. I'm just having to have to bend down and pick it up. Oh, I want to eat Blow some more. It. Now, I was reading just very quickly. Um, good marzipan apparently contains minerals such as calcium, potassium, and magnesium, and is also rich in vitamin B and polyunsaturated fatty acids. So in a way, but it's quite it's a good for bar, us. Then. It is, but Anna, on the <laughs> side, marzipan is high in fat and in sugar, primarily of sugar or honey and ground almonds. But anyway, it is really good. I thought you were going to say it takes you back to your. Your are you Swedish? Yes. Yeah. Swedish. Yeah. So did you live in Sweden ever?
1: No, but we used to spend all our summers there when I was little, um, which also definitely infused something into me. I the bet Swedish it did. Thing. Yeah, but Karnicas, it does. I think this does sort of take me back to Sweden a bit. We always had Marspå in my house. I didn't really like it when I was a kid, but I like chocolate a lot. But I like this because I like the way that the chocolate's really crunchy on the outside. And you have got
0: the grittiness on the inside. <laughs> I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to start buying this. I think I, I Isn't can it, see it delicious? Yeah. When I actually, um, lovely listeners, when I sent Anna an email saying we're going to have a chocolate break, what chocolate would you like to suggest? I promised you she has, she loves chocolate. There was a whole list that came back, and I thought if we're going to be consuming all that, we're not going to have much chat time. So this, this was her final. <laughs> her final pick and I think it is superb. So thank you, Anna, very much for introducing me to that. Anyway, back to work for you, Anna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on success and failure? It's really loaded. Uh
1: so, you know, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of talk about success and failure and what constitutes success and what constitutes failure and and you know what you can learn from failure but you don't necessarily learn from success. Um, you know, so I think that when most people think about success, or not most people, but a lot of people talk about success and they say it's all about financial gain. You know, I'm successful because I, I, I'm making lots of money doing this thing. That's certainly a factor, please. Yes, I'd really like to make some money from my business. But I think that actually success is a slightly more cerebral thing for me because it comes from a creative point and that is you know do I actually think that thing that I've designed is a good design
0: so your your thoughts on failure what does failure mean to you I can't bear failure. actually I really I can't bear the,
1: that sensation of the way it floors you so much if you really do fail so I I say it coming from quite a deep place, actually. I think I really did feel like I had failed when I stopped working in fashion. I definitely went through a massive period of depression, you know, because of it, which is strange. I, you know, sounds very, I don't know, maybe it sounds not like the sort of thing you should get really depressed about, but anyway, I don't want to countenance invite too much failure, but I think you have to take little failures on the chin. You have to kind of go through them to learn from them and then come out the other side. And you have to get good at being robust against them because I think they happen all the time. But I, I think I don't like to take them on the way I did when I felt like I was a real failure anymore in my life, if that makes sense. So I try to be light with them, if that makes
0: sense. Do you ever see failure as a sort of positive thing in the way that if you fail, then you make sure the next time that you do it in a different way? Definitely. I I think
1: it has to be that. I suppose I think I feel like failure is such a huge, huge word. It encompasses something so big for me. I think although there are day-to-day failures, I wish there was a smaller word for it, if that
0: makes sense. It does make sense so Anna, moving on to your well-being and how you look after yourself. how important is incorporating well-being into your day? Really important. so I I try to do some exercise every day. in
1: the first lockdown, I was on Instagram looking for free gym class apps and things like that uh, classes. so I was doing lots of those, and they were all different things like hit or yoga, or, and I was doing them in the garden in the first lockdown. The second lockdown has been a lot less um, enjoyable <laughs> because the weather's been so bad. But I have been just going to, you know, my, my proper gym and done classes online, so I've been trying to do those. I also used to do a bit more running, but I've actually got really bored of running and I almost hate it with a passion right now because of the lockdown running thing.
0: Yeah, so exercise is
1: really important, so...
0: Have you changed the way that you look after yourself over the years, do you think? Or have you always looked after yourself? I have
1: looked after myself for quite a long time. Um, When I was young, I was a bit more reckless. But, no, I I, I can say that I've been a regular exerciser for a really long time, actually.
0: (laughs) What triggers your stress, you know, do you, and how does it affect you physically, mentally? When I get stressed, I either lose weight or I put on weight. Mm-hmm.
1: I get a bit of anxiety, you know, so sort of heart palpitation slightly, if it's very stressful, you know, I get a little bit frantic, but I don't necessarily look frantic. I remember actually when I was doing my MA that and I was really in, under a lot of stress and the, t- the tutor was like you're just you're like cool as a cucumber Anna. and I was thinking oh my god if you only knew I'm literally dying inside you know I was, my heart was in my throat and I was kind of bracing um, and he said to me it's really good if you've got that skill because you're going to go into this industry which is so highly stressed and I was like oh my god more than this you know <laughs> Uh, but it is actually fashion industry is massively stressful.
0: Do you ever switch off? Do you? How do you take time out? I watch TV. Um, I've watched so much TV these lockdowns, um, but
1: kind of slightly obsessively um, staying up far too late watching box set after box set, like I think the rest of the world has. What's the, what's your most favourite box set? Oh my God! At at the moment, I'm watching Paul Dark. I, have you not seen I've come up? so late. To, no, I've come so late to the party. I know.
0: Well, you're he lucky. He's so sensational. Yeah, oh he my is. God, yeah. I am lucky. He's absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. <laughs> so you, so you watch box sets, and you were about to say you go walking. Is that right? No. Yes,
1: I go for walks. I've always actually, yes, I always have gone for walks. It, when I was young, that was the thing. I younger. I I used to do that. I love to go for a walk. And actually, one of the things I've been doing in lockdown, which is perhaps now a bit naughty, but I walk into the middle of London and look in all the empty shops, you know, the closed shops, um, as in not empty, but closed shops, in in the windows and see what's in the windows.
0: Mind you, they haven't been changed for
1: months. (laughs) No, they they haven't. But some have, like all the really... um, the kind of antique shops and stuff like that. They're, oh, yes. Lots of them have done beautiful displays and changed them quite regularly. Yeah, they have. Regularly.
0: Do you have a daily so, ritual at all? Get up,
1: do my exercise. That's it. That's <laughs> as much as a ritual as I get. Well, that's,
0: that's pretty good. It's good to get up, <laughs> for starters. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> I have to say I may not want to get up. In fact, every day in the last week, I
1: thought to myself, oh, I don't really want to get up today. <laughs> but you. Know, that's lockdown, isn't it?
0: Do, you um, yeah. do you find that you sleep well or do, uh, if you can't sleep, what do you do?
1: Oh, I can't sleep. So I've had definite moments in my life of uh, proper insomnia. What I now do, when I have an insomnia, moment is I think you're going to actually die, I think. I just think about fashion, I think about what I'm going to design. I try and design things in my head that's what I do. Well that's daydreaming, so I, kind of I think that's positive. Actually, I, I go, I actually go, I'm actually working, I'm awake while I'm working, that's what I do, I kind of try and back, and then I don't feel like it's a complete waste of time being insomniac and you know desperately wanting to sleep, I think I should use this time in my head design but of course then you eventually maybe fall asleep and then you forget everything that you've come up with i know you almost
0: space. needed a notebook <laughs> by your bed okay so with more and more people anna in this um covid world potentially losing jobs or thinking about setting up a side hustle or just thinking i need change i want to do my own thing what advice would you give to them and how easy is it to get into the fashion world nowadays
1: I think it's really difficult to get into the fashion world these days Uh, although there are many many more courses and there are so many more areas of fashion that you can get into so if you do want to get into the fashion industry and you're a young person and you go to one of the um, universities or colleges that has a course there are a lot more vocational courses so there are now courses like fashion marketing and things like that but in a way when i did my courses they they sort of didn't exist you you know if you wanted to work in fashion you're a fashion designer and then there were sort of things like the course held by Harrods to become a fashion buyer that was talked about yes i I I remember that you know and there was sort of nothing really else in between um although i did then meet a friend later on who'd done a sort of fashion journalism course um you know, but there seems to be nothing else. You're a fashion journalist, or you're a fashion buyer, or you were a fashion designer. Um so but now there are loads of different courses. So that would be a great way to start.
0: Okay, and what um, advice would I, you give people who to set up their own business?
1: If you don't do it, you'll never know. You have to try. That's it. That was the sort of that was the guiding principle for mine. And then Just know this though, you will work so hard and actually you almost won't know when you're having successes because you'll be so busy working on, trying to get the next thing, trying to do the next thing. And you will not even begin to realize how much more you've got to keep digging. Do you know what I mean? Um,
0: So true, so true. Yeah,
1: I think the key to it is just it's literally the amount you do it just keep doing it you know.
0: Anna finally where have you had to have the most hope and also patience in your life business?
1: I've absolutely had to have the most hope in my business in the last year there have been moments where I just almost didn't know what we were going to do next and, and that is directly to do with Covid you know should we shut down and for everyone on furlough should we keep going, opposing huge, great big, diametrically opposed principles and concepts, having to come to terms with them and sort of okay if we keep going, it will be okay, we must have hope that it will be okay, rather than ooh, if we keep going it we don't say anything and it's suddenly got nothing, you know, yeah I've I've had to switch off the inner voice, the negative pessimistic inner voice a lot this last year. So this year has taught me a lot on that. Um, And then patience. Yeah, I I think that's also how I've had to show real patience because we've had to do things this year in such a different way than we would ever have done them before. We've had, you know, half the people seem, seem so, my head seamstress also left this year so I had to find a new one so you know and then you're trying to work through testing out new people and that's been incredibly stressful finding a new team um, seamstresses and having the patience, digging to find the patients for that when you know you've got we had some orders we had to create the orders and you're, you're literally thinking I had to email that client again and tell her it's going to be another few weeks. What, how am I going to put it this time? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When you've already said, "Moment, no, we don't have any seamstresses," and we, you know, because you, you, what you want to do is, you people have to rely on you when they order something, and you never want to let them know that it's not going to happen because it is going to happen. It's just that sometimes an adverse condition comes up, and this year has had we've had many, many, many of those. So yeah, it's been very um, challenging. And I've had to dig deep and show patients on um, finding ways to cope with that, for sure.
0: So where can the listeners find you, the amazing pieces, what's in the pipeline?
1: OK, so they can find me on my website, which is animationlondon.com. They can find me on Instagram, which is animationlondon. And I hope what's in the pipeline is we're moving our showroom to a more central London location. Actually I've had to have quite a lot of patience on that because that was something we were going to do, you know, much quicker. <laughs> this COVID <laughs> year
0: has meant that it's dragging on and on and
1: on. Who knows when that will come to fruition, but that that I hope for greatly.
0: But it will happen. And also they can find your pieces at Netta Porte, can't they? Yes, they can, yeah they can. And if they're in America they can find us at SACs. There you go. We do have some lovely listeners in the US, so that's great. They can find you there too. So Anna, I would love to say a huge thank you for joining us this afternoon. It is so amazing to talk to someone all about fashion and hear more behind your label it's I've learned so much and I have my wish list I have it sort of written up you've shared some real gems so thank you very very much it's been absolutely lovely
1: but you've kind of floored me with a lot of your questions as well I was there not you go. To be so
0: tongue-tied. <laughs> Thank you, Amelia. <laughs> anyway, before I go, it's time for uh, my. It's a website recommendation in this episode and quote. So the website I want to recommend is the How to Academy. It's an organisation um, for people who think big, and you'll discover stimulating and thought-provoking talks. Guests have included Jim Collins, who wrote the book Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0. Marie folio, everything is figurable, Bill Gates is coming on. I'm a subscriber, which means that all the events are free and you can download them whenever you like, but you can also pay per event. It's absolutely superb. I would really recommend it. It's a good. It's usually 6:30 to 7:30 in the evening, so it just kills off an hour of lockdown. And the quote actually funny enough is from Coco Chanel and it is, "Fashion is not something that exists in dresses only. Fashion is in the sky, in the street. Fashion has to do with ideas, the way we live, what is happening." A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to subscribe to get the latest episode and if you're enjoying the show, it would be truly fab if you would rate and review it. I think that's on Apple. Or better still, share it with folk who may value a gem or two. Any book recommendations, quotes, songs can be found in the show notes and on the website too. Until the next time, however tough these times get, keep that very special inner sparkle you have shining. Open Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk. Find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and
1: Instagram at Amelia underscore Rope.